continuing in the book of 1st Peter in our verse by verse exposition of 1st Peter we are starting right at the beginning of chapter 3 which means that you can turn to Psalm 34 while the rest of you are turning to Psalm 34 do me a favor Tom and also look up Proverbs 16:7 because Proverbs 16.7 is kind of the theme of what we're going to continue to uh, discover from Peter's writing. Let's start by reading Psalm 34. I'm going to read the whole psalm because there is a big section of this psalm. 
that Peter actually quotes. So clearly Peter is influenced by this psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's the section of this psalm that Peter particularly quotes in 1 Peter 3. The idea that a man who desires life and loves length of days so that he will see good should also keep his tongue from any evil and his lips from speaking any deceit and that he should depart from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. David goes on to say, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, there are many folks who have pointed out that that part of the psalm is suddenly messianic, that many are the afflictions of the righteous. There is only one righteous one. That is Christ. But the Lord delivers him, specifically him, out of all of them. So Yahweh delivers him, the righteous one, out of all of the troubles and the afflictions that he's going to go through. And then he adds this thing. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. That was fulfilled when Christ on the cross was not broken. None of his bones were broken. David continues, evil shall slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of them who take refuge in him will be condemned. You can now turn to First Peter. 
Proverbs 16.7 Tom's going to read for us because it is thematic again to what Peter is getting at here. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. To really understand this, though, we're going to have to really look at the context again. It's almost impossible to start right at the beginning of chapter 3 because it starts with, in the same way. And so we have to kind of go back and find out what is like in the same way. This entire section, as I've reminded you over and over again, is Peter writing to the diaspora. Peter is writing to scattered Jews, Jews that are outside of Jerusalem. They are believers in Christ, but they are also believers who have a Jewish background, which is why he cites the scripture so many times in order to encourage them to live the way and behave the way that is appropriate for Christian believers to live among the Gentiles, he says. And so these Jewish believers are told all the way back in chapter 2, verse 13, to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to, and then he starts a list of different submissions that Christian believers ought to submit themselves to particularly Jewish believers who are living among the Gentiles. Because the Jewish believers living among the Gentiles have all kinds of evil spoken about them simply because they are Jews and because the Jews were widely hated by the Gentile nations. And so all manner of horrible things was said about them. And Peter's response all the way through the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, his response is, be so good that they have nothing they can say against you. Let your behavior be so exemplary that it demonstrates the lie of the things that they are saying against you. So willingly submit yourself. Now, at the beginning of chapter 3, the reason that I'm taking the time to go back and review all this and kind of build up to it is that at the beginning of chapter 3, we're going to read, wives, submit to your husbands. That is not a particularly popular opinion in this day and age. But I want to demonstrate that it is part of the larger argument that Peter is making, which is that everybody should willingly submit. And that there is an order to things, and it is a God-ordained order. And if everybody submits to the God-ordained order, then you're going to be able to live at peace just like what Tom just read for us. That if we honor God, if we follow through our lives the way God has laid out our lives, then God is going to make even our enemies live at peace with us. And so we ought to do everything we can to be good and faithful and wholesome members of society, living our lives as good representatives of God in this world. If we bear the name Christian, we ought to certainly act like Christians, then the people who want to say negative things about us are going to be demonstrated as lying because the things they would charge us with are fallacious charges. So that goes all the way back to Peter saying to the diaspora, you're scattered among the Gentiles. The Gentiles are speaking all kind of evil against you. Therefore, willingly submit. Now, years ago when we were working through the book of Ephesians and we got into husband and wife language in the book of Ephesians, we talked about this concept, willing submission. 
And back in those days, Jennifer brought up that women just inherently have in them the Eve nature, she called it. If you don't agree with that, blame her. The Eve nature is that natural, rebellious kind of I will not have this man to rule over me kind of nature. I'll do what I want to do. If I decide I'm going to eat from that fruit, I don't care that my husband has told me not to eat of that fruit and said God didn't want to. I'm going to eat of that fruit anyway. I don't think it's a mistake that when Satan was in the garden in the form of a snake that he didn't go straight to Adam and say, no, 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 Adam, God doesn't really mean that. He went to the woman first. And that reality has brought forth all kinds of New Testament theology that includes women then willingly submitting themselves to the order of the church, to the order of their husband. And equally then, we're going to see Peter say, and you men, honor your wives. So there's a balance to be had here. Men are told, honor your wives as the weaker vessel. I heard a a preacher years and years and years ago who used to be a friend of mine. I haven't spoken to him in a few years. His name was Kent Clark. Not Clark Kent, but Kent Clark. He's not Superman. And he was talking about men study your wives, that that's what the word has to do with, men becoming aware that their wives are different creatures, that they have a different emotional makeup, and that they have their own thoughts and their own ways of being. So study that so that you can then honor them in a way that is appropriate to them. And if you live like that with your wife, then the wife should also submit to the husband. And if you do that, then everything's going to work out fine in your marriage because both sides of the marriage are receiving what they want from each other. They're getting the appropriate respect and the appropriate honor that they're requiring out of each other but when Peter says this it's in the context of now everybody willingly submit because we all have that nature that says I will not have anybody rule over me self-made man I'm an American I'm going to get out there and do what I want to do and can't nobody tell me any different that's just our nature And that's what's fed us all the time in the media and in the uh, philosophy, the American philosophy of self-made man. That's what's fed us all the time. But the Bible says, willingly submit. And that we're to do that submission for one very important purpose, which Peter says here, for the Lord's sake. That's why you do it. People don't change, people don't do things unless there is some compulsion to do it that is beyond them, some bigger principle beyond ourselves. And the bigger principle here, according to Peter, is for the Lord's sake. You want to know how to keep peace at home? Willingly submit. Peter's going to say, you know how you keep peace in the society? Willingly submit. You know how you're going to get along with your enemies? Well, be so good that they can't say anything against you because of your willing submission to the authorities that God has placed over you. So this concept of willing submission runs all the way through 
everything Peter is saying about willingly submitting to servants, willingly submitting to masters, to wives, willingly submitting to husbands, to husbands giving their wives the due honor. And then in verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, so to sum up, let everything be harmonious and sympathetic and brotherly and kind-hearted and humble in spirit. So that's his summary statement, verse 8. And the whole argument starts in chapter 2, verse 13. And you have to understand that whole context. Otherwise, you're going to pull one or two verses out of context here and start saying, hey, 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 wife of mine, the Bible says you have to submit to me. But that's not what the Bible says in its entirety. It says the wife should willingly submit, but the husband should also willingly honor the wife. So there's always a balance to be had in the marriage relationship. But as long as we understand that the authorities that are placed above us are the authorities that God has placed above us and we willingly submit to those authorities, then we're going to be able to live at peace in this world and God is going to give us even peace with our enemies. You got all that? Yes, sir. That's the introduction. For those of you who don't know the rules, introductions don't count against my time. Oh, yeah, I got lots of time. I think I've made the visitors nervous. So let's start reading at chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, by the king, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves to God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants. Be submissive to your masters in all respects, not only to those who do good and are gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure that with patience? But if when you do right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. 
for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. In the same way, now do you understand the in the same way? It's all submit, submit, submit. Learn to live at peace in the society that you are in. People are going to make up lies about you and speak all kind of evil against you. Make sure that you counter that with the example that Christ left you. He was the righteous one. He is the only just one. And yet, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he did not utter threats. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. He entrusted himself to Father God. So then let that be your example, says Peter. And in all things, make sure that when you are reviled, you don't revile back. When you're insulted, you don't insult back. That you recognize that God has said, judgment is mine, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will recompense. So if God's got it, if God has pretty much got your back, if God is going to do the vengeance part, what kind of vengeance can God pour out on his enemies? Plenty, and plenty more than you can. And so you are told to just trust God. He's got it. You return to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls, knowing that there is peace in the uh, reality that Christ is looking after you. So in that same way then, and that's why I want to emphasize that phrase, in that same way then, wives... Be submissive to your own husband, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, remember that Peter is writing to the diaspora. He's writing to the scattered Jews who are living in the Gentile nations. And so there would be some of them who are acting in disobedience to the word. So Peter's reply is, if you are submissive to your own husband, then even if they are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So be submissive to your own husbands. Be faithful wives so that if they are disobedient, now this is parallel to the idea that there are people who are going to hate you, that there are people who are going to say all manner of evil, there are people who are going to revile you. In the same manner, there may be a husband who is being disobedient to the word, who is not honoring his wife, and the instruction from Peter is to be submissive to your husband so that they may be one without a word by your behavior, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And now, let not your adornment be merely external, like braiding the hair or wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. By the way, the NASB has included the word merely because that is the implication of what Peter is saying. Peter is not saying, don't do your hair don't wear jewelry, don't dress nice. That's not what Peter said. He said, make sure that your beauty is not just outward beauty. Make sure that there is an inner beauty of the soul that is exuding from you. So let not your adornment be merely external, braiding your hair or wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality 
of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God, which is precious in the sight of God, which is precious in the sight of God. So what is precious in the sight of God? A gentle and a quiet spirit. Now this goes all the way back to the things that even Solomon wrote. Solomon wrote several times. Now Solomon, of course, had what? How many wives? A lot. You went with a lot? Really, The specific quantity we're going for is a lot. More than one. Concubines? Many. Okay, so he's got women around him. And that's why he would write things like, Living in a small house in the corner of a small house is better than living in a large house with a brawling woman. Well, he would know. He's had enough experience to know. This is the same thing in contradistinction that Peter is getting at. That God finds it precious in his sight to find a woman with a gentle and a quiet spirit. Because her gentle, quiet spirit... And her chaste and respectful behavior is a demonstration that she is a woman of God. For in this way, in former times in the Old Testament, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. And then Peter gives us an example For Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That was the degree to which she submitted to her husband. She saw him as her master. And so Peter uses that as an example. And you do indeed read that. That Sarah did not only obey Abraham, but called him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, if that was all Peter said, then somebody could listen to this message and say, well, then you're talking some kind of uh, suppression of women. You're putting women down. But Peter is now going to continue and talk to the men. And I think in many ways, he puts a greater burden on the men because His expectation from men is that they're going to be the leader, that they're going to demonstrate the appropriate honor for their wife so that their wife can see somebody that is worth following. Now, this is, I will say again, the ideal, because it seems that whenever I preach these kinds of things out of the Bible, like out of Ephesians 5, that somebody will say, but what about this situation? What about a situation where the man is abusive? What about a situation where the woman is not faithful? What about situations like this? Then then how does this apply? Well, because Peter is talking in the largest context about how the Jewish diaspora are to behave out in the Gentile society, he's simply giving them instruction on their ideal behavior so that it is God-honoring, so that it is Christ-reflecting. But Peter doesn't take the time to get into, now, by the way, if the unbeliever leaves, then let him leave. That, that's Pauline. Paul gets into that stuff. If you want to talk about that stuff, go to a different section of the Bible that actually deals with such things. All Peter is doing here 
is saying this is the way you believers ought to act among the Gentiles who are trying to find something they can say against you. Therefore, let your behavior be excellent. Men, honor your wives. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Everybody, be submissive to authorities. Be submissive to kings. Slaves, make sure that you are submissive to your masters. Make sure that nobody has anything they can say against you while you're out there professing to belong to Christ. That's the biggest context. So if you have questions about, well, what about this or that? What about this situation or that situation? That's not what Peter's about right here. He's talking about and he's emphasizing the necessity to live a Christian life in front of a society that hates you. Do you understand? So the proper way that a Christian marriage would be is like this, like what he's describing. Sure, there are going to be problems. Peter even admits it. There's going to be husbands that are disobedient to the word. He has it right there. Yes, there are going to be situations where this ideal is not met. But that doesn't change the ideal. The ideal still stands. So verse 7, Peter turns to the husbands and says, You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. That's where Kent Clark said, study your wives. Pay attention. Find out what makes her tick. Find out what she's about. Make sure that you're satisfying her needs, her emotions, her wants and desires. You husbands live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman. Now, before you bristle at that, it's just a simple fact. Can I use you as an example? Do you mind, Mary? I guess you're going to. <laughs> <laughs> no, what happens whenever we see Conrad and Marilyn pull up outside? Now, they snuck in late today, so we didn't get out there. But what usually happens is that the men of the church run out there to help Marilyn get Conrad into his wheelchair and get him in here. Why do we do that? Because if it was Leon who was putting Conrad into a chair and bringing him in, we'd all stand there and point at Leon and chuckle because Leon would be doing the work. Why? Because Leon's a guy. But Marilyn's a woman. And so we honor her and we recognize that she doesn't always have the physical wherewithal, though it certainly does seem she has it. <laughs> she thinks she does. But we want to help her because we recognize that this is a woman who is pushing a man in a wheelchair. And we want to willingly do that because we recognize what Peter has said here, that we're going to help because she is the weaker vessel. He's talking about physically weaker. He's not saying mentally weaker. He's not saying emotionally weaker. He's just saying she's physically weaker. Therefore, the man, the stronger of the two sexes, ought to protect her since she is a woman. And grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, so let's talk about a couple things here. First off, that your prayers be not hindered. I don't know about you as married couples, but it is a, a wonderful blessing when you can pray together. And your prayers are going to be hindered if the two of you are like this. If the two of you are fighting, if you get to the end of the day and all you're thinking is, I, I'm so angry at him, I'm so angry at her, 
if you're not settling your differences by the end of the day, if you're going to bed angry at the end of the day, you're not thinking about praying. If you're praying anything, you're like, please, God, change her mind. Make her more like me. That's, and your prayers are going to be hindered because you're not going to recognize that was too hard a laugh right there. True. True. And then you have to rethink what you prayed for, huh? <laughs> yeah, so your prayers shouldn't be hindered. You should be in unity. You should be collectively a good representation of Christ on the planet. But notice something else that's inherent in this text. This text is all about husbands and wives. Notice how Peter defined husbands and wives as male and female. Notice that the assumption always in the New Testament, always where marriage is concerned, is that it's one woman and one man. Always across the board. There's no exceptions where you find now husbands treat your other husband with appropriate honor. You don't find that anywhere. You don't find two wives called a marriage anywhere in the Bible. What you see is what Jesus laid out, that it was one man, one woman ever since Adam and Eve. And you see Peter carrying that through. When he talks about the marriage relationship, he talks about husbands and wives, male and female. Just thought I'd point that out because of the number of people who say, you know, that's not really addressed that much in the New Testament. Anywhere that Jesus or Paul or Peter or anybody talks about marriage, it's always husband and wife. Even when the equation is made between Jesus and the church, it's still husbands, wives, male and female. Always. The church is referred to in the feminine gender because Christ is the male gender in that marriage covenant and union. So the New Testament is very clear about what a marriage consists of, and it's inherent in the text. So you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. To sum up, okay, so now Peter finally gets to his summary. Everything I've been saying this morning, everything we've been reading this morning can now be summed up in this statement. To sum up, let all be harmonious. So what's he getting at? Live at peace with each other. Be kind-hearted to each other. Be sympathetic. Be brotherly. Let brotherly love prevail. And in that kind of peace and harmony and sympathy, kind-heartedness, that humility of spirit, that way the things that people say against you are going to be demonstrably false. And so live a life that is exemplary so that Christ is honored. Willingly submit yourself to the authorities that God has put over you for the sake of the Lord. You get all that? So to sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Now remember a moment ago, remember that there's, first off, no chapters or verses in Peter's original letter. The chapters and verses are just added by translators so that we can all end up at the same place at the same time. But remember, just previously, Peter has written... 
For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So he's the only righteous one, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. Okay, so knowing that he was like that, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he did not utter any threats in return. So therefore, now chapter 3, verse 9 can say, don't return evil for evil because that's the way Christ did it. Since that's the way Christ did it, make sure that you as a representative of Christ respond in a Christ-like way. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult. Man, in this day and age of Facebook, isn't that difficult? Isn't it difficult in this day of social media when people are sitting behind their keyboards being keyboard warriors saying all kinds of ugly things about Christians in general or us in particular, I see my name bandied about all the time on the internet. And I see some very unkind things said about me. And my instinct, my instant instinct is to sit down and go, oh yeah, well, who are you? People on the internet couldn't see me typing when I said that. I want to sit down and defend myself. I immediately want to say, well, no, you don't understand. Why haven't you listened? Why don't I? I want to write like mad. But fortunately, God has taught me through the years that if I just wait them out, not only does it dissipate, not only does it just kind of go away, but at the same time, they get sort of frustrated that they can't seem to get my attention. They get frustrated because they're trying to engage me in an argument and I won't argue with them. And oh, that frustrates the fool out of them. And they end up having an argument with themselves. <laughs> and they just keep writing these things like it's eventually going to goad me into saying something. But I've learned to just not return insult for insult. You know, Jesus himself said things like this. He not only demonstrated it, but he said things like, Love your enemies. A very difficult thing to do. But he still said it. Because as a representative of Christ, we ought to be Christ-like. And he loved you when you were his enemy. That's right. That's why he died for you. That's why he sacrificed himself for you. That's why the Bible would say, not that we love him, but that he first loved us. So since he first loved us, we love him in reply. And if he could love us when we were enemies of God, when we were depraved sinners who were living our lives after the prince of the power of the air, after the course of this world, and he nevertheless would love us enough to lay down his life for us, shouldn't we demonstrate that in the way that we live peaceably and kindly and lovingly, even to our enemies? So Peter would write, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Now, you know that that word blessing, the same way that it's used, bless the Lord, that it can mean speak well of. And I think that's the way Peter is using it here. I don't think that he means just 
writing something on Facebook like, oh, well, the Lord bless you. I think he means speak well. Take the time to say something good about them. And that reverses the argument immediately. It's really funny how quickly that works. My father taught me many, many years ago to compliment people. And he used to tell me over and over, compliments cost you nothing. It costs you nothing to be nice to somebody. It costs you nothing to throw out a compliment. So I raised my kids with that idea. Throw out a compliment now and again. And Megan does it all the time. We'll be checking out up at Food Lion, and she'll find something about the checkout person that she can comment on. Oh, don't your nails look nice? Oh, that's a nice necklace. Oh, you should see the way they light up. Because they can't believe that somebody actually paid enough attention to say, oh, your hair looks really good today. Those kind of compliments just immediately make friends. And so I think Peter is saying to your enemies, to those who are speaking ill against you, not only should you not insult them, but instead you should say something positive about them. And it's really hard for people to hate you when you're going, you know, you're a pretty smart guy. You're looking good. You're dressed well. Your hair looks good. You're a pretty smart guy. You're, when you're saying stuff like that, they're like, yeah, well, I want to argue with you against myself. Wait. Um, okay. Yeah, it's a great way to diffuse an argument, to give a blessing. Instead, you give a blessing for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So, what does he mean by that? He means if you are godlike, if you are Christ-like, if you do be kind to your enemies, if you do live following all the things that Peter has laid out here, the willing submission, the not giving insult for insult, not speaking evil for evil, if you live that way, that is God's determination, that is God's preference for you, that's the way that God's economy works out, and if you live like that, you will be blessed by God. So don't you want a blessing from God? Yes. Well, then live like he says. Do what he says. Honor your wives. Submit to your husbands. Servants, submit to your masters. Submit to the authorities of the society that you're living in because God has placed those authorities over you on purpose. So bless and don't curse. And then from all that, he launches into the very psalm that we quoted from this morning, that we read from Psalm 34. He says, let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. In other words, Peter learned all this from the psalms. He's learning it from the scripture. The scripture we're reading right now from Peter is based in scripture from the Old Testament. Peter is just giving us his commentary on this Old Testament scripture, which says that if you mean to love life and see good days, then you've got to watch your tongue. You've got to watch it that you don't speak evil and keep your lips from speaking all manner of insult against people. Keep your lips from speaking guile. Be honest with your lips. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears attend to their prayers. But the face of the Lord 
is against those who do evil. There's the contrast. So what is Peter getting at continually through this whole section? He's telling the folks in the diaspora who are living among the Gentiles, make sure that your behavior actually demonstrates your love of Christ. Christ suffered for you. You now suffer in the place where you live. If God determines that you have to suffer, do it with patience. Do it with, without insult, without reviling. Because that pleases God, and that is the way that you get a blessing, and that's written all the way back in the Psalms. And who is there? Here's his big statement, verse 13. And who is there? Is there any king? Is there any governor? Is there any leader in your society? Who is there who will harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? People don't generally get angry at you for being too good. People don't generally get upset about, how dare you be kind to me? Stop being nice to me. That's not what upsets people. So Peter says, who is there to harm you if you prove to be zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, then you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ the Lord in your hearts. Sanctify, separate, recognize as holy Christ in your hearts. Let that be the inspiration for why you live the way you live. Because you have sanctified, separated, treated as holy Christ in your heart. That's the motivation for your behavior. Sanctify Christ the Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Okay, now we've put verse 15 in its context. That's a verse that is often cited by the folks who are doing apologetics because the word that is being used for make a defense is apologia in the Greek. It's the word from which we get an apology, a, an explanation of why it is that we believe what we believe. But notice where Peter placed it contextually. He didn't just say, be ready to give a defense as in make sure that you know all your doctrinal P's and Q's and you've got all of your theological points ready so that you can answer anybody who has a different theological view. That's not exactly what he's getting at. He says, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks about the hope that is within you. Why will they ask about the hope that is within you? Because you're living this way. Once you're living this way, especially you of the diaspora who are out there among the Gentiles, when you live in a God-honoring, Christ-honoring way, people are going to ask, what's different about you? Why, when you're reviled, don't you revile back? Why, when you're insulted, don't you insult back? Why, when you suffer, do you suffer patiently? What is it that gives you that kind of hope, that kind of expectancy? That kind of ability to suffer, and yet you have this peace that passes understanding. Why is that? Well, then be prepared to answer. Be prepared to give a defense for why it is that you're like that. So he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready 
to make a apologia, a defense, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet do that with gentleness and reverence, of course, because all the way through here, he's been talking about your gentleness, your submission, your kindness, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. So, of course, even when you give your response to where your hope comes from, even when you give the response for why it is that you believe in Jesus Christ, do that with gentleness and reverence. Not arguing with people, not yelling at people, not roughshod riding over people, but to do it with gentleness and reverence because that is in keeping with everything we've read from Peter about what the Christian life looks like. And keep a good conscience. Now, I want you to hold on to that phrase, good conscience, until next week because Peter is going to bring up this concept again of a good conscience, a clear conscience before God. I think it's part of what he's talking about when he says so that your prayers aren't hindered. Because if you're busy warring and fighting, then your conscience is not clear before God. But hold on to that concept. He wants you to have a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Again, there's the whole point. The whole point is so that those who slander you and revile you are put to shame by your good behavior. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Now, notice what Peter is doing again here. He did it. We saw it last week. He's doing it again this week. As he's talking about our Christian behavior, as he's talking about the way that we conduct ourselves, he constantly takes it back to the basic theology of Christianity, the fact that Christ died and sinned, and yet he didn't revile back. So don't you revile back. He was the only righteous one, and yet he suffered. So then you suffer patiently. Now here he's done it again. For Christ died once for all. That is a demonstration of suffering by the will of God for doing what is right. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is doing wrong because Christ also died for sins once for all. Two phrases, we've got to talk about these two phrases, a little bit of theological input, and then we'll call it a morning, and you can go home. Two things. Notice what he said about Christ died once for all. He is not saying, if you look at the way that phrase is used throughout the New Testament, he is not saying Christ died once for every single person. Even those people who are his sworn enemies, even those people who he said... That sin right there, that rebellion against me, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven in this life or the life to come. But now I'm going to go die for your sin. He is saying Christ died once and for all. Finished. Done. That exact phrase is in the book of Hebrews where it talks about Christ's sacrifice 
as opposed to the sacrifices made by the Old Testament priests, the constant blood flow of animals, of sheep and of goats and of bulls, that constant blood had to keep flowing because none of those sacrifices ultimately took away sin. They all pointed to, they all prefigured the final sacrifice that God was going to make that would ultimately take away sin. Therefore, Peter is picking up the same thing and saying that Christ has died once. It only had to be done once. Unlike all of the sacrifices that went on for 1,400 years under the law. Unlike the priests constantly slaughtering animals and the constant flow of blood. Christ died once for all, it's done. But then look at this. This is astounding. The just for the unjust. I have had people try to engage me in debate. And they say, where do you get the idea of substitutionary atonement? That's just a big theological phrase that means Christ died, not for his own sins, but he died for our sins that our sins were placed on him and he died and suffered the wrath of God in our place so that Paul could write that we are not appointed to wrath. We're never going to experience the wrath of God because Christ experienced that in our place. And the law said that if you don't keep the law, you were going to be under the penalty, you were going to suffer under the wrath of God. And so Christ, as our substitute, suffered under the law in our place. So there is nothing that God has against us, which is why Paul would write things like, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God who justifies. It's Christ who died, yea, that is risen again. And if that is all true, then in fact there is nothing that anybody can lay against our charge eternally. Because the just one, the righteous one, died specifically for the unjust and the unrighteous. He is our substitute. And then glory of glories, his perfect righteousness is then imputed to our account. Well, it doesn't get any better than that. Especially if you're somebody like me. Then you're really happy to know that Christ died, again specifically, For the ungodly. That's what the Bible says. Christ died for the ungodly. Now, I'm not advocating being ungodly. I'm saying that Christ died for those who could not save themselves, who simply did not have the ability to save themselves, who could not get to God to plead their case, who weren't holy or righteous enough to stand before the God who has encased himself in a light that no man approaches. And yet we're told that we're going to stand in front of him and we will be spotless and unblemished. How? How is that possible? Because I'm really spotty and really blemished. So how do I stand before him and be spotless and unblemished? It's right here. The just one died for the unjust. For the unjust. That's substitutionary atonement. And notice that Peter doesn't spell it out the way I just tried to do. Peter just puts it out there. Because it is standard operating Christian theology. It is just what they understood about what it was that Christ did. Why did Christ die? What was he doing on that cross? What did he accomplish when he said, it is finished? What did he do? He died for the unjust. He died for the ungodly. 
And as our substitute, he took the wrath of God in our place so that we never have to undergo the wrath of God. Now, I don't care if you understand or don't understand all the other stuff I said this morning about Peter's theology. If you don't understand the diaspora being among the Gentiles and being insulted and how they should live exemplary lives. If you still disagree with me that husbands should honor their wives and that wives should submit to their husbands. Even if you've heard nothing else I've said this morning, you ought to walk out of here really, really happy. Because once again, you heard about the fact that God has got nothing against you because his son is such a complete savior who saves so completely that he died the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that you will stand before God spotless, unblemished, and fully accepted in the finished work of Christ. That alone is worth the price of admission what'd you pay to get in here (laughs) you got me you understand (laughs) we have won the lottery absolutely now next week we're going to start with two phrases that literally every commentary you can find on this next part of Peter admits that it's one of the most difficult to understand and translate passages in all the New Testament because Peter uses a couple of really long kind of run-on sentences to say complex things that he's not real clear about. So it's kind of like, come on, Peter, stretch a little bit. Tell me what you're saying. And so next week we will talk about a couple of the different interpretations and theories that surround those passages, and we'll do our best to see if we can sort it out. But that's where we will pick up next week. If you would leave with nothing else this morning, for Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he, Christ, might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And I got nothing to say to that except amen. 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 Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.